Growing up Canadian, you hear a lot about how lousy the Ross rifle was during the First World War. Never an explanation as to why. I was always given the impression by teachers that it was a matter of public procurement corruption and just the general incompetence of a new semi-nation like Canada. Hell, we didn't even have control over our own foreign affairs at the time. If you pair the Ross rifle with the ridiculous shield shovel manufactured for Canadian troops, you get a grand theme of Canadian incompetence. For those of you not blessed with having a Canadian education, the shield shovel was a spade for digging trenches, except there was a hole to place the rifle through so that it could double as a shield. The handle could rotate 90 degrees and would expose a spike underneath the spade to anchor the shield into the ground. The problem was that the steel was too thin to stop bullets, but too heavy to carry in the field and dig for extended periods of time. There was a large hole in the shovel that made it useless in silty mud. But I think this narrative of failure developed from a lack of understanding of the mechanics of the Ross rifle by both teachers and the general public. Unless you're aware of how the Ross rifle is made and operates, you can't fully understand why it failed as a general infantry rifle in the First World War. Before we get into the history, let's talk about the rifle itself. The Ross rifle uses what's called a straight pull action. The action of a firearm is basically how the firearm loads around in the chamber, fires the round, and then extracts the bullet case. Most military rifles of the early 20th century use what's called a turn bolt bolt action. You're probably familiar with the bolt action if you've ever seen a regular hunting rifle. In a turn bolt system, the operator turns the bolt upwards with the bolt handle. Then the operator pulls the bolt handle backwards to extract a bullet case. Then the operator pushes the bolt handle forward to feed a new round into the chamber. Then they push the handle down to lock the bolt in place. In the case of a straight pull bolt action, the operator needs to pull back the bolt and then push it forward to complete the action. The number of movements by the operator is cut from 4 to 2, increasing the potential rate of fire. The straight pull also keeps all movements level with the barrel, so the aim isn't being pulled up or pushed down. And the easy disassembly of the rifle made cleaning easier, in theory. So why did Canada adopt its own service rifle when the British Empire had the perfectly respectable Lee Enfield? The Lee Enfield is an interesting design. It's made to maximize rate of fire and volume of fire by having a cock-on-close mechanism and by holding 10 rounds of ammunition. So why not stick with this proven design? Well, the British Empire was mostly indifferent, if not outright hostile, towards its colonial possessions. Canada was no exception. The colonial system was created to extract raw resources and e export them to British factories. When Canada wanted to manufacture its own rifles to fight in the Boer War, Britain refused to license the Lee-Enfield SMLE design to Canadian factories. This is where an odd fellow, Sir Charles Henry Augustus Frederick Lockhart Ross, the ninth baronet, steps into the story. He was a fancy lad, Scottish nobleman, given every toy in the world, and going to all the usual rich boy schools like Eton and Trinity College. Naturally, he was also on the rowing team for Cambridge, but he had bigger dreams than rowing, so he sued his mother to stop spending his inheritance and then use this wealth to finance his inventions. He loved target shooting and hunting, so naturally he became interested in firearms. He designed his own, including the Ross rifle, in 1903. The Canadian government took a keen interest in this superior marksman rifle. He financed the factory himself on the Kootenay River of British Columbia, joining the long list of industrious Scots who helped build Canada's industrial base. Ross clearly borrowed design details from the Austro-Hungarian Mannlicher M1895 straight-pull rifle. 
developed his proto-Ross rifle designs around the same time period in the late 1890s. The Austro-Hungarians had used this as their main service rifle through their disastrous performance in the First World War. But the disaster can be pinned on the rotten Austro-Hungarian government, not on the rifle. Ross was also keen to fight in a war using his designs. He joined as a lieutenant in the expedition to fight in the Second Boer War, and designed and manufactured the Ross rifle for his machine gun battalion. It was here that he became a captain and an advisor on small arms to the Canadian government. The Royal Northwest Mounted Police received the first shipment for testing purposes. The rifles were roundly rejected by the Mounted Police, and they went back to using their previous rifles. The flaws the Mounted Police found were legitimate, and these flaws were corrected in the Mark II Ross rifle. The Mark II also got an upgrade to cope with the more powerful 270 Ross cartridge designed specifically for the rifle. An even grander redesign was accomplished with the Model 10 Ross rifle, which was no longer parts compatible with the older models. This new Model 10 was done in 1910, four years before it would become the service rifle of the Canadian Expeditionary Force during the First World War. Naturally, the British wanted all of their colonial forces to use the same weapons for logistical reasons, but Canada stood by the Ross rifle since it had proven to be an exceptional marksman rifle in pre-war service. The rifle did, however, come chambered in 303 British to ensure British ammunition could be used during the war. But Canadian units were quickly ditching the Ross rifle for British Lee Enfields as they realized the Ross rifle was terribly suited for trench warfare. The Ross rifle was too long compared to the Lee Enfield at 44.5 inches versus 52 inches. The tolerances, basically how all the parts fit together, were too tight for dirty environments. This would cause the rifle to jam. Similarly, if the ammunition was dirty, which it frequently was in trench warfare, the gun would jam. Because the rifle could be easily disassembled, it frequently was disassembled to clear these jams. The problem is that the rifle could be reassembled without locking the bolt, but still being able to chamber and fire around. In this case, the bolt would fire backwards out of the rifle and hit the shooter in the face at tremendous speed, causing severe injury or death. At Ypres, the 1st Canadian Division picked Lee Enfields off of their dead British comrades after their Ross rifles failed to return fire on the advancing German assault. The rifle became a political scandal amidst this carnage and chaos. Canada's forces were organized into an independent corps, but were still under British command. This is the very same British who had resisted the Ross rifle from the very start. Yet the Canadian Minister of Militia, Sam Hughes, continued to defend the government's choice of selecting the Ross rifle. Now let's rewind a bit. Hughes had a real chip on his shoulder against the British military. He had clashed with them during the Boer War, first for opposing his offer to fund and raise a private Canadian force to help in the war effort, and second for crossing him while he was serving in the war itself. Hughes had a healthy respect for the Boer guerrilla warfare, and a marked contempt for the British Army which he saw as a bunch of fancy lads compared to the stout Canadian volunteers who grew up on the harsh frontier of colonial Canada. It was in Africa, where Lord Ross was also serving, that Hughes became a fan of the Ross rifle. If these fancy British boys dislike this rifle, then by George, it stands to reason that it must be the best rifle ever made. And to feed into Hughes's contempt for the British, he was also dismissed from the Boer War for not following orders, despite being a competent officer in combat. It was quite ironic 
that such a fierce British imperialist as Hughes was constantly at odds with the British Empire itself. The British Lieutenant General Edwin Alderson, in charge of the 1st Canadian Division, voiced his strong opposition to his Canadian troops using the Ross rifle. Hughes publicly rebuked Alderson and Canadian officers who dared to criticize the rifle, just as he had publicly rebuked the British Army back during the Boer War, thus sabotaging morale between the government and the Canadian Corps. Hughes would do this throughout the war. He would say outrageous statements, and journalists would happily prod him for quotable quotes so that they could sell papers with all of this hot goss. But the reports from Canadian officers were eventually leaked to the newspapers, and Hughes lost the confidence of PM Robert Borden. In serious wars, effective combat will eventually trump fragile political turf or egos. A good example is how Second World War uh, battleships were eventually relegated to hiding in port, when everyone realized how vulnerable they were to aircraft attacks. By the end of 1916, the British finally had enough Lee Enfields to supply all of their expeditionary forces. The British commander-in-chief, Douglas Haig, ordered all Canadian units to switch to the Lee Enfield, much to the delight of the men who relied on their rifle to survive. Borden finally had an excuse to boot Hughes, who he had wanted to boot earlier, but couldn't bring himself to do because Hughes was one of the few MPs who stood by him as opposition leader when other conservative politicians wanted to dethrone him. But Borden also agreed with Hughes that the British government was patronizing towards Canadian ambitions, and the British army was incompetent on the field of battle. So the Ross rifle had survived for a few months of combat as a result. But now, Hughes had no choice but to accept the overwhelming opposition to the Ross rifle, and he was shuffled out of cabinet. Hughes' tenure had been so dismal that a new ministry was created specifically to fix the ongoing situation overseas. It wasn't just the Ross rifle. Hughes was also a fervent Orange Order supremacist who hated Catholics at a time when the government of Robert Borden was hoping to get more Irish and French Canadians to fill the army ranks. Hughes isolated the permanent militia, which was organized on merit-based promotions, and he lavishly built up the non-permanent militia, which he could fill with his cronies. He even doled out free Model Ts to each of his colonels. Then when the war broke out, instead of mobilizing the militia, he created the Canadian Expeditionary Force, throwing the whole organization into disarray, and moving the base of operations from Petawawa, Ontario, to Valcartier, Quebec. Hughes was an originator of the concept of mandatory conscription, and paired it with the temperance movement as a way to stamp out alcoholism in society. And... He was a bit of an egomaniac as well, promoting himself to Major General, wearing his militia uniform everywhere he went, and constantly harassing the British government to give him the Victoria Cross. He paraded around Valcartier on horseback with an honor guard and barked incomprehensible orders to confused fresh recruits. He was just generally an asshole to everyone. He called Borden a little girl. He physically ejected a representative of the Humane Society who questioned the treatment of horses at Valcartier, and he spoke ill of the British, Catholics, and French Canadians at every opportunity. But as much of an asshole, and perhaps slightly insane, that Hughes was, he did manage to prevent the British and War Secretary Lord Kitchener from cannibalizing the Canadian Expeditionary Force, which eventually allowed Canadians to shine as an independent Canadian Corps during the First World War, culminating in Vimy Ridge, the founding event of our modern nation. If Hughes isn't there at the helm, 
the Canadian units might not stay together. If they don't stay together, they don't perform brilliantly to hold the line at Ypres. And if they don't hold the line at Ypres, the Canadian Corps isn't formed with Arthur Curry leading the 1st Division to victory at Vimy Ridge. So what to do with these hundreds of thousands of unfit rifles? Well, despite there being more Lee Enfields produced by British factories, there weren't nearly enough for training purposes. So the Ross rifles returned to Canada, or they went to Britain, and later on some of them would go to the US to free up the 30-06 Springfields for the front. Personally, I don't know how good an idea it is to train on a completely different rifle action, but I guess it's better than training with a wooden stick. One interesting development is that many Ross rifles were converted to light machine guns in Quebec, called the Hewitt Automatic Rifle. The experimental trials were promising. Here we have all these rifles that we can't use by themselves, but they can be converted to cheaper light machine guns than the other models in production at the time. If the trials had worked out, the British could have shifted resources in their own factories, and Canada could have produced a cheap, effective light machine gun for the Empire but the war ended before the Hewitt could be tested in real combat. The rifles that weren't cannibalized to make machine guns or reduced to humble trainers were given to allied forces as sniper rifles. The Ross rifle was an incredibly accurate rifle for the time. Snipers could choose the time and place of their kills so they could keep their rifles and ammunition free of dirt. The scope was installed on the side of the rifle so that the riflemen could still use the iron sights for close quarter combat and could quickly feed ammunition with a stripper clip. Stay tuned because I will do a podcast on Canada's snipers during the First World War, who were far and away the best snipers of that conflict, in my totally biased opinion. So anyway, the Brits shipped some of their surplus Ross rifles to Eastern Europe to supply the white forces, including the newly independent Baltic states who were battling the commies in Russia. When the Soviets won the Russian Civil War, they captured and inventoried these Ross rifles, which didn't match any of their ammunition calibers in production. A decade later, with the ongoing Spanish Civil War, Stalin decided to dump these useless rifles on their communist allies who also didn't have sufficient 303 ammunition to feed the rifles. The remaining rifles that hung around the British Empire went on to serve the Allies during the Second World War. Once again, there was a shortage of small arms, especially after the disaster of the Blitz that left many weapons stranded at Dunkirk. The Ross was put into action on naval vessels and the rear guard of Commonwealth units. Some Ross rifles were even airlifted to defend the Svalbard Archipelago which forms the far north Norwegian islands with large coal supplies and a key naval base to supply Russia. So if you're a Canadian, be proud of your humble national weapon. The rifle was arguably the best sniper rifle of the First World War. It went on to train thousands of allied forces in the art of marksmanship. It fought its way through the Russian Civil War, the Spanish Civil War, and the Second World War. It's a part of our heritage. But what happened to Lord Ross in the end? Well, being Britain's largest landowner, he declared his part of Scotland to be part of the United States, making him a seditionist. Just like the US of A, he didn't want to pay taxes to the British government. But nothing much came of it. In the end, he made a tidy fortune making these rifles for Canada, rifles that were of excellent quality, but of little use in trench warfare. And like so many Canadians, he retired to Florida as one of the original snowbirds.